But one of the most important lessons we learn in life is the difference between personal beings and impersonal objects. All too often we get into trouble when we think of other people as objects to be used much like we use our own possessions. There are some things that we value more than others, of course, our house, our car, um, but people must always be given a higher priority than our stuff. Uh, we heard this debate really carry out quite recently during the early days, of early weeks of this coronavirus crisis. Some people worried about the economic consequences of a lockdown and they started voicing their concerns early on. Others suggested that we ought to prioritize people over money and I'll admit that was my position in those early weeks where there was so much uncertainty and unknown. I, I sort of said, let's, let's, you know, who cares about the economy for two weeks, <laughs> right? Let's, let's forget about that. Let's make sure that we're not going to destroy, you know, lives, that, that this virus isn't going to wipe out 2 million people, as the early projections were saying. Um, I, I think that's really based in a, in a biblical view, right? That life is more important than stuff. Um, just think of all the warnings about the corrupting influence of, of money. Um, however, as things have progressed, uh, we are beginning to see that the debate is not so much people versus money, but the physical health of some people versus the physical and emotional health of other people. It's about those unintended consequences that are begun, beginning to come to the surface and come to light. Um, and so now it would seem that those unintended consequences of our unprecedented reaction are proving to be worse than the virus. And so that debate has only gotten louder and probably even more obnoxious for many of you. I really don't intend to get into that uh, today. Uh, I'm not here to explain which threat is worse at this point in time. I do, however, want to reiterate the priority of people. More accurately, the priority of treating people with the dignity and the respect that they deserve. Um, when we simply view people as objects to use or even as obstacles uh, to, that are impeding our movement, we tend to lose sight of their value. And no one wants to be treated as a statistic. Uh, I imagine those in, in power find it hard not to treat their constituents as anything more than numbers. Uh, how can they get, how can they provide the greatest opportunity for the greatest number? And they think of, of those in the lower quantity as, as being of less value than those in the higher quantity. Um, and so how could they, how could you really understand the impact of all their decisions? when they don't have a personal relationship with people. Um, thankfully, that's not the case with God. As we consider the prologue to the Ten Commandments, today we'll see that God starts by reminding his people of his relationship with them. These commands don't come from an angry dictator who's establishing his authority over us. 
No, they come from a divine and benevolent God who's, who, who has already shown that he loves us and he's rescued us. And so out of, out of that love for us, he then further establishes his covenant towards us in giving us a way to live and honor him. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we have this opportunity to sit under your word. We thank you that we can come before you and we can come humbly, recognizing your greatness, your transcendence, and recognizing our need because of our sinfulness. Lord, we come humbly before you. We come desperate and in need to hear from you. Lord, we are struggling. We, we feel like we're in exile right now. We're having a, a taste of what Israel in exile felt like. Or we, we can't gather together corporately. We're unable to enjoy all of the privileges and benefits of corporate worship. Lord, we thank you that some places are beginning to open up and and yet, Lord, we, we still feel ourselves uh, bound in this state. And so, Father, we just ask that you would give us hope. Help us to set aside those concerns right now, which is hard to do. But Lord, give us the ability to focus our, our full attention upon you and your word and to learn and grow. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts that we might be convicted where we need to be convicted and once again comforted by the truth of your gospel. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll read with me Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, it's a brief passage. We're just going to look at really two, two points. Um, we'll look at verse 1, which is really short, and, and then we'll look at verse 2, which is really technically the prologue. Uh, to the Ten Commandments. But this first verse gives us an idea of a, a, that a sovereign God spoke the Ten Commandments. So in this section, we, we begin just with a very basic but important starting point, right? That the Ten Commandments were spoken by God directly to Moses and the people of Israel. To understand this, it'll be important to consider the, the context. And, and to do, in order to get into the context, we'll summarize the previous chapter briefly. Um, and then we should also pause to consider the way in which he spoke to them, right? There were, they were given a, uh, the commandments weren't just, you know, expressed, they were given in a particular format. Uh, and, and so that, that format is then reiterated several times in the Old and New Testament. So it's important that we understand that. Well, God came down upon Mount Sinai uh, to meet with Moses, and you read about that in the previous chapter, verses 16 through 25. His appearance is reflected with thunder, lightning, clouds, um, fire, smoke, and trumpet blasts. Uh, sounds very familiar to the description of, of God in uh, Daniel chapter 7 or, or Revelation that we've seen multiple times in the book of Revelation. 
So this, this sight caused the Israelites to tremble, even as the mountain itself trembled. Moses brought the people to the foot of the mountain, and as he spoke to God over the increasing sound of the trumpets, God responds through the loud thunder so that all could hear. And God called Moses to the top of the mountain only to send him back down. And that had me wondering how tall this mountain was. And if tradition is correct, then the mountain that is believed to be Mount Sinai stands 7,497 feet tall. It would take roughly two hours to ascend and then an hour to descend. Uh, And so depending on how long he stayed at the top of the mountain, this, this would have taken half the day. So he goes up, he comes back down, and God sent him back down in order to warn the people not to try to break through the foot of the mountain to catch a glimpse of God. They they would certainly perish if they attempted to do so. The priests were to be consecrated, so he commanded Moses to bring up Aaron on his return trip. Um, So this is the context in which God is now speaking to Moses. Uh, The display and power that is represented by his presence demands reverence. The the people were to respect God's sovereignty. Before any of the commands were given, there was a fearful anticipation among the crowd. And what Moses was about to receive was meant to be taken with all seriousness. Now, before getting to the prologue, we, we need to understand something about the format in which they were spoken. All right, God would ultimately write these commands upon two stone tablets. It's typically understood that the first tablet would have included the prologue and the first four commands. And, then, uh, and, and those teach us our duty to God. And then the second tablet would have contained the six other commandments regarding our duty to man. Um, You can read more of that in our Westminster Larger Catechism, question 98. But this makes sense when you consider the way in which the law is summarized elsewhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.5 speaks of our love for God, which would describe the first four commandments. And then Leviticus 19.18 refers to our love for neighbor, which is outlined in the commandments 5 through 10. And that's confirmed again in the New Testament. Jesus himself multiple times uses this layout, right? This format in Luke, in Mark, and in Matthew, several places in Matthew, in fact. But Mark 28, or sorry, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31 says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe asked for the greatest command, and Jesus responded by giving him two commands, which really serve as a summary of the Ten Commandments. We could summarize these two commands even further following the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 13, 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the love one, uh, for the one who loves another 
has fulfilled the law. So the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What he means is that our love for one another reveals that we also love God properly. And so the first four commands dealing with our love for God are the foundation of the last six commands dealing with our love for neighbor. And so J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, as we attend to the wishes of those we love in the human family, so we attend to the law of the Lord out of love for the Lord of the law. Now, since, since God gave the moral law in such a way that the people knew his power, they were not given the freedom to manipulate that format. They, they couldn't simply take the moral law as general suggestions. Right? The people typically respond to the commandments by pointing out how impossible they are to keep. And I mentioned last week that that is the purpose of the first use of the law. It's to convict us of our inability It's to point out that we cannot keep these commandments. But instead of this realization leading people to Christ, oftentimes their first instinct is to reduce the law down to something that's more manageable, something that they can do. And so instead of hearing them say, I know that I've lied and stolen in the past, so how can I make it up to God? Which would also be bad theology, but at least it would be pointing them into the the right direction that they that they're not at peace with God, and therefore they need to do something about it. Um, instead of hearing that, though, what's more common is you hear this: "Of course I lie and steal. Everybody does. It's not like I robbed a bank at gunpoint or something, you know, or they'll point to some other." far worse sin than any sin they've ever committed. And so they tend to minimize their guilt by comparing their crimes against God to greater crimes. In other words, they're not as bad as other people, which means they must be good. But that's not how it works. The Ten Commandments reveals that all of us are wicked. All of us are evil from birth, really from conception, And we need to be made right with God. So while while some will will minimize uh, their guilt by comparing their crimes to worse crimes, others minimize the law by pointing out uh, the many exceptions to the rule. Right? I know that we're not supposed to kill, but what about the soldier in war? Uh, We're not supposed to lie, but what about Rahab? who hid the spies and, and lied right, to her, her the, who lied to the police. Uh, we're supposed to honor our mother and father, but what if they command something unreasonable or unjust? Now, these are tricky situations, and we'll explore those as we get to each one of those commandments. But this line of thinking can continue down more obvious compromise. Right? I, I know that I'm not to commit adultery, but what if my girlfriend was in an abusive home and she has nowhere else to live, so she lives with me? Uh, I know I'm not supposed to steal, but what if I'm taking from the rich and giving to the poor? Right? There's a, a good outcome from my sin. Uh, this is really just situationism. Uh, J.I. Packer explains this really well. He says, situationism is worldliness. 
not only because it opens the door so obviously to wayward self-indulgence, but also because it aims to squeeze Christian morality into the fashionable, permissive mold of decadent Western secularism, which rejects the restrictions of all external authority and is sure that we are wise and good enough to see what is really best just by looking. But by biblical standards, this is one of many delusions born of the satanic, God-defying pride with which we fallen creatures are all infected. So we have a tendency to buck authority, to want nothing to do with authority. We're, we're, I mean, that's really our, our tradition in the West here. And so we should be very careful about thinking that exceptions to the law excuse our disobedience. Pointing out one possible exception does not mean we can turn the command into a general rule of thumb, nor do positive outcomes ever justify wicked means. That's not how they were given, nor is it how they were interpreted throughout Scripture and throughout church history. A sovereign God is able to command whatever He wills, and we are not privileged to adjust them down to whatever standards we want. That does, that does mean that we are prone to fail. It means we're not going to be able to obey them perfectly. The standards are just too high. And that's why we can never forget that a gracious God gave the Ten Commandments. That's our second point in verse 2. A gracious God gave the Ten Commandments. And here we cannot fail to include the, the prologue when applying the moral law. And this is what clearly reveals the gracious nature of the Mosaic Covenant. The, the consequences of, of disobedience are, are evident uh, as, we, as we consider uh, the prologue. And, and then we, we see something of the, the gift of redemption here as well. Um, and so it's mixed up with kind of our inability to keep the moral law. But then there's also this obligation this ongoing obligation to keep it. And so let us consider these things here, just from the prologue. What what makes this revelation gracious is the fact that it's given by a personal God, right? Who has already shown his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to his people. Kevin DeYoung says, it would be frightening to the point of death if God thundered from the heavens, I am the Lord. But the divine self-closure doesn't stop there. He goes on to add, your God. He is on our side. He is our Father. He gives us commands for our good. So God had already delivered them out of slavery. They have complained about their circumstances in the wilderness, but God continued to provide for them. And now he is graciously going to establish a covenant with them through Moses. And so it's important to recognize the the gracious component of this covenant. In the covenant of works that God made with Adam, he not only required obedience, but he also promised life. And he endued him with the power and the ability to keep it. At Sinai, God renewed this perfect law of righteousness. These are the points that are made in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, sections 1 and 2. And so in one sense, it was kind and gracious of God to give the Ten Commandments. 
He could have left the he could have left his people with nothing but their conscience to identify various categories of sin. By creating man in his image, God already gave them the ability to know right from wrong. Cain knew it was wrong to murder his brother Abel, even though the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, had not been formally revealed. Cain had a conscience, and God punished him for disobeying that conscience. The Ten Commandments provide concrete examples of how we offend God. And so the moral law reveals our sin. That's what we learn in Romans 7. We also learn in Romans 3 that it establishes our guilt as covenant breakers. Right? Knowing the moral law doesn't cause us to obey them. It doesn't give us, just because we have knowledge of the law doesn't mean we can now obey them. It only establishes our guilt as covenant breakers. And so the consequences of disobedience were immediately felt in their generation. Right, as uh, the, that, that mosaic generation, uh, they would deal with disease and famine. In fact, Moses' generation would not be allowed to enter into the promised land because of their sin. And the ongoing disobedience of future generations would cause them to experience military defeat and exile. There were always going to be consequences for disobedience. The Israelites' covenant unfaithfulness would have devastating consequences. And yet, despite that, God would keep showing his steadfast love to them. In fact, his his discipline of them was part of his love for them. He was drawing them back to himself with the cords of discipline. And so in order to preserve his own name, he would draw them back. He would remain covenantly, covenantally faithful to them. He would reestablish his commitment to them time and time again, not because of anything they had done, but because of his own good name, because of his commitment to his own covenant. See, God would remind them of his covenant faithfulness before delineating the Ten Commandments. Before he gives them these ten words, the Decalogue, he reminds them, of his faithfulness. One of the gravest theological errors is to reverse that order. If you begin with the commands and you end with the reward, then you have created a works-based salvation. But God begins with his rescue. Their love, which would have been expressed through their dis, uh, through their obedience, is only possible because It's a grateful response to God's initiating love. Before getting to Sinai, you must remember the Exodus. And in fact, that's how Moses instructs the parents to teach the law to their children. They were to begin by teaching them about how the Lord brought them out of Egypt by a mighty hand with signs and wonders. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so on Mount Sinai, God was honoring the covenant he had made with Abraham. Uh, In fact, there's similar language. You can look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. It reads, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. And then in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
similar language. It's a direct echo, in fact, of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so there's, this is really the renewal of the covenant of grace. It's a, a covenant to provide a people, a land, and numerous blessings that begins in, in uh, really in Genesis 3 in the, in the garden um, with the, the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel message that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, that, that covenant of grace is, is, is first really a, a established and explained to Abraham more fully in the covenant form, right? It's given to Abraham. And, and ultimately, it's a covenant in which God took upon himself the stipulations of obedience as well as the consequences of disobedience. You see that beautifully in Genesis 15. And so Abraham had the duty to obey, but God was acknowledging that from the start, Abraham would fail and his descendants would fail. But instead of requiring the blood of Abraham, he paid the price of our disobedience with the righteous blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The fact that the Mosaic covenant was established by a gracious God does not imply that, the obe- that obedience to the Ten Commandments was possible. Right? Knowledge of the law does not provide the ability to obey it. It provides the recognition of our inability to keep it. This brings us to our need for Christ, who took the curse of our disobedience on the cross. And so we have seen how a sovereign God spoke the Ten Commandments, and a gracious God gave the Ten Commandments. But the gracious work of Christ upon the cross, and the ongoing enabling of the Spirit in a believer's, in a believer's life, actually serves to strengthen our obligation to obey the moral law. The moral law remains binding. But now now that its curse has been lifted and the Holy Spirit has been granted to obey from a heart filled with gratitude, we can actually keep the law imperfectly, but we can begin to honor him right out of gratitude. The Reformed Study Bible puts it like this very simply. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. And so in Augustine's Confessions, we read, give what you command and command what you will. Right? He's saying, you can command, Lord, whatever you want. You are the sovereign God. You can command anything and we must obey. But if we're going to obey, then you have to give the ability to give what you command. And so a gracious God is willing to give whatever he commands through the the grace that is found by faith in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Romans 6, 14. And so the summary of this prologue is this. The Ten Commandments reflect the character of our God who promises to give what he requires. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you once again for your goodness, your kindness, your grace in our lives. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to look at the Ten Commandments as a, a, a list of things that we can, we can simply try really hard to accomplish. Lord, we know that, 
that they were given with the expectation that we would fail and that we would need a Savior. And you not only gave us your Son to die upon the cross in our place, but he also lived the perfect life of obedience that we couldn't live. So that on the cross, he took our sin and our guilt and our shame upon himself. He became sin so that we might receive his righteousness. Or that, that glorious and beautiful exchange reminds us to, to now live in gratitude. Lord, help us never to lose sight of this prologue, of the the grace in which the Ten Commandments were given. Help us never to think that we we can just check them off personally, Lord, but that we must once again rely upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit that you've given us. But Lord, help us not to think only about that in, in the sense that, that, that the Ten Commandments are not meant to be a guide for us. We looked at that last week. Or they're meant to be now, now that we have Christ and His Spirit, and we're united to Him, we can continue to walk in obedience. And we can please Him and honor Him, however imperfectly in this life. But Lord, You receive our efforts, and You reward that which is sincere. And so we thank You, Lord, not only for giving us Your Son, but for giving us the blessing of the law, Lord, that we might obey and give you glory with our lives and enjoy the, the, the blessings of an eternal inheritance that awaits, purchased for us by the blood of Christ. It's in his name we ask. Amen.